Jesus, we got a problem. This is the amount of world that's going to hell in a handbasket. Right here. It's okay if I got a plan. Sorry, I can't help you. Sorry about that, Jesus. Somebody had a problem that I couldn't fix. You. Go play. Okay. Where were we? Oh, yes. My plans to save the world. We'll start small. First, how about church parking? Mm-hmm. Enough said. I almost lost my salvation because of it. You want to be church softball champ? Me too, Jesus. You sick of losing all the time? Me too, Jesus. That's why we take a second offering. For steroids. First church down the street's doing it. Have you seen their cleanup hitter? He's a beast. This is my seven-part series on financial freedom and tightly folded laundry. I made them in my basement. I'm just getting started, Jesus. I said I don't know where your dog is! You dig a hole right here. That should end global warming. This is how you power my apocalyptic flashlight! Don't be in the dark when the light of the world returns! I'm very busy saving the world! It's almost charged! Oh god, I'm gonna throw up! So it's right foot, left foot. Really work the elbow. Get the feet going. Yeah! Yeah! But then you look back. Stone! Now for the big finish. Hallelujah! What do you think, Jesus? It's pretty good. What? Please, mister, I need your help. Listen, Jesus and I are in here solving the world's problems. And okay. Where was the last time you saw it's okay, we'll love. They normally run too stuff. Put your dogs there. Here you go. Here you go. What do you think? Now, uh, if you have faith in Jesus, uh, do you ever find yourself just a little bit acting like this guy in the video? Maybe you're not quite as, um, we'll say, eccentric. But, um, you know, you have your plans and your proposals and maybe your charts that, that in your prayer life, you're like, hmm, I know this could really work, Jesus. Or, man, God, if you could do this, that would really be helpful. Or, you know, that's fine that that's your plan, but this, this is my plan. And maybe if you've done that before, like the video did, it was, it, it's effective, potentially, probably, though, it's not. Um, but as you sat there and looked at this video and saw the uh, maybe humor, maybe cheesiness, uh, maybe it was a little painful to watch, or what I like to refer to as, um, I guess short-sighted is probably the best word I'd use. Because the, the, the producers, I, I rightfully, are trying to introduce a pretty sobering, serious topic. Like, what about all the pain and the problems of the world? Beyond the, the cheesiness of the, the church softball, if you will, uh, what about the devastation that we see and the pain that we see and the death that we see every single day? What about the, um, not, to, not to be uh, trite, but 
What about the 7.6 million Syrian refugees that are fleeing this country, east, north, west, south, trying to get to a place of safety? And even closer to home, the, um, the death that we see so often, just, just a week or two ago, the Minnetonka family, where the dad took the life of every person in his family before taking his own, because so far we, what we know is financial difficulties. And, and even closer to home, uh, our own Apple Valley High School had a, a student commit suicide on the first day of school. Um, these, these are just the things that are around us, and we don't have to go very far to see them. Just in my neighborhood last week, one, another marriage died. Um, but we don't even have to go across the street. We can just look in our own homes, and we can hear about and think about the, the challenges that we have with, with maybe bosses or employees and the deception that sometimes occurs, or maybe between parents and teenagers, the deception that occurs, and, and the challenges really, the suffering that we see. It's, it's a humorous way to bring up some really tough chop topics that we shouldn't just skim over. Because this, these might not be just examples. This might be your life right now. And even if it's not your life right now, you might know someone who is in this place. And, and Christians say that there is a God who knows about the pain there's a God who cares about the pain and the evil and the death. And there's this God who can do something and does something about this problems and pain and evil in the world. And that really boggles people's minds, whether they have a faith in Christ or not, that, that God could know about it and care about it and do something about it. Because usually one of those three things, skeptics and, and others alike would say, that's too complex. God just doesn't seem to act that way. So let's really look at that because, again, Christians would say the answer, the best evidence of that claim that God cares, God knows, and God does something is in the person and work of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, uh, go ahead and open it uh, to John 11 because John tells a story about Jesus and a family, three dear friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And as you read this story, you come to find out, as you read the Gospels, you come to find out that these aren't just Jesus' disciples. They're not just close followers. These are people that Jesus hangs out with. Like, he goes and spends time in their living room. They're, they're family to him. And, and in this story, we see that, that Jesus, I mean, this, the writer tells us right away that, that Lazarus is someone Jesus loves. In fact, three times in the story, Jesus it, the writer comments that Jesus loves this family. And I think that's important because what we see in the story is that Lazarus gets sick and the sisters say, Jesus, the one you care about is sick and he doesn't come. And maybe you've prayed before and you've said, God, I really need this. And maybe you don't pray very often, but you pray for something big and something important and it doesn't get answered. And, and now you're thinking, okay, so does God care, or did he know, or can he not do anything? At least those are the things that often go through my mind. My guess is they might go through yours. And, and I think that's part of the reason why, three times, the writer reminds us that Jesus loves this family. He loves them. Even when it doesn't seem to be like our prayers are answered, he loves them. But there's more to the story even than that. So we'll start in verse 17. 
It says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead. He'd been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany, the town where they lived, was less than two miles from Jerusalem, so many Jews had come to Martha and Mary's to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. Beside the teacher is looking for you. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went, from the vil- uh, went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him on the edge of the village. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her saw that she left so quickly, they went out and followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how much he loved him? I think the more advanced we get, as a society, the more advanced we get in technology and in in math and in medicine, the more that we're able to physically avoid death. Maybe that's great, but the more I think that we're physically able to avoid death, the more I think we just avoid the subject of death entirely. Think about the things that we use to talk about death. Well, he passed away. Oh, I, I lost someone recently. And and I think these these statements are used to just not have to face death head-on directly. Because even though we know so much about it and we can battle it and outlive, it seems like we can outlast it. We, we can't. It's final. And so that still stems this fear in us. And, and at the time of Jesus, death was a communal event. Everybody from the village, everybody from their society, everyone that knew them came to celebrate and mourn the loss of that life. And so these people came from all over the place. The mourning could last a week. And in the first three days, the Jewish belief was that the spirit of this dead person would be nearby. Like maybe there would be a resuscitation from that person, then they would live again. But after the third day, that spirit would leave. And not to be too funny, but in the words of the princess bride, this person would be all dead. Not mostly dead, they'd be all dead. So it's significant when, see, when Jesus comes to the village and he'd been dead four days because there was no hope left in the place. There's just mourning. Trusting in this God for this resurrection on the last day. Do you see how far away it has been? And I, I hope you notice right away, this gives us some interpretive clues to how and what the writer's trying to do here. 
the two women say the exact same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And yet, in the same two statements, Jesus gives two very different responses. It's really worth looking at. Because not only is it what each sister needs, it's what the writer wants us to know about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Because the first sister, Martha, she's trying to explain her grief. She's trying to give faith in her grief. And, and she says, in essence, I know God's still going to do great things in you. This hasn't altered my faith in you, Jesus. But, but the fact remains, my brother died and you weren't here. And so he says, well, your brother will rise again. And she kind of puts this insulation, I believe, over her faith. Well, yes, I know that he will rise in the last days. Like, I know that he had faith for eternity, and I have faith for eternity. But right now, like, this is where I'm at. Maybe when you're suffering too, you say, okay, I get that things will be better in heaven. But right now, they're not great. And so she insulates her grief and I think he, he walks right into that. He sees the blanket of optimism that she's trying to spread over her grief, and, and he meets her right there. He meets her in that moment, and he gives her truth, and which shows, I think this truth shows his divinity. Because she needs more than a someday in the future faith. She needs something right now. And he says, I am the resurrection, and the life. This is the, w- this is the phrase that Jesus uses all throughout this, this, writer's, this writer's story to say a claim of divinity. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, now this, this kind of idea is not something that, that people really readily accept, especially people that don't have faith. They, they would be gladly would say that Jesus is a great teacher, Jesus is a great leader, Jesus is a great example, but Maybe he v- even a great prophet, the founder of Christianity. But when you say Jesus is God, the line gets very, very small of who's lining up. But when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, this is his claim that he is 100% God. I'm divine. And it's written all, all throughout the scriptures. Jesus claims to be God, indirectly, indirectly. Some of the direct comments of his claim to be God is in Mark 2 and Luke 5 when he forgives sin and the religious leaders say, but who but God can forgive sin? And Jesus goes, mm-hmm. that's right. Only God can forgive sin, but since I'm God, I can do that. And in John eight fifty eight, when he is going through, he's already said in John 6 that I am the bread of life. And he's already said that I and the Father are one. And then in John eight fifty eight. When he says, before Abraham was the greatest person of the Jewish faith, the founder of the Jewish faith, he says, I am the divine name of God. And in John 20, at the end, after his resurrection, Thomas, one of his disciples, says, my Lord and my God, and he worships him. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, you can't do that. He accepts his worship because Jesus is claiming that divinity. See, it's important for us to remember that that. When we're grieving, sometimes we need comfort, but sometimes we need truth. And Jesus will meet us perfectly in our grief, but he wants us to point, he wants to point us to God's glory. And that's what he's doing here for Martha. Now, 
if you've, um, if you've been a student or a skeptic, maybe I hope you've read a book like More Than a Carpenter or C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. It's, it's a couple of thinkers that really go through and talk about these claims that Jesus was divine. Now, was he really divine or was he not? Because skeptics say, well, well, wait, those references that you just mentioned, Rob, those were added later to the Bible. They weren't part of the original Jewish belief when that was put down, or the Christian belief when it was put down. But if you actually do some evidence outside the Bible, you see that, that Roman sources and um, some outside sources actually say that Jesus was the king of the Jews. They put it on his cross. They have evidence that he actually lived. And even though it might have been meant in mockery, this title was a messianic title. This was a divine title of Jesus. And it is witnessed outside of the scriptures. Also, if you do some internal evidence on documents, you find out that these weren't oral traditions, these weren't legends, but they were actually eyewitness historical accounts of people who were there written in, for the New Testament, written within one generation of when the things actually happened. And if you compare all the copies, there is almost no error. No, no other documents in, in the world compare to the accuracy that the New Testament holds. Now, maybe that doesn't convince you, but um, there's never been a time in history that Christians have not believed that Jesus was God. For 2,000 years, Christians have believed that he was God. So there is evidence within the Bible that claims that Jesus is God. There's evidence outside the Bible that claims Jesus is God. And so where does that leave us? Some skeptics would say, well, then, then maybe he was just delusional. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls this the liar argument. Maybe he knew he wasn't God, but he just told everyone else that he was God. Except if we really think about that, uh, we can study history and we can see that in the, two, in the hundred years before Christ and the hundred years after Christ, there were hundreds of people who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. Guess how many actually claimed to be God? Just Jesus. No one did that. Because these people were Jewish. The Jewish people believed there was one God. He was so holy that they wouldn't even write out his name in full. They would never, ever believe that there would be a human that would be God. And Jesus' first followers, they were all Jewish. He would have had to convince all of them. And the very reason that Jesus died on the cross by the Jewish officials was that he was claiming divinity. So this idea that he lied about it and that he could go to the cross for a lie is a stretch in most people's minds. So then the last argument that, that C.S. Lewis or, or Josh McDowell would, would say or other thinkers would say, well, if he's not a lunatic and he's not Lord, then he must be, uh, if he's not a liar, excuse me, and he's not Lord, then he must be li- a, a lunatic. He must be crazy. He must really believe that he's God, but he's not. And... Uh, If you do a little research on this, you'll find out no major religion at all has a founder that claimed to be God. And no, no major religion, uh, sorry, the, the major religions often say we have a prophet who will show you how to find God. Jesus is the only one who says, I'm God, and I'm gonna find you. And so 
if you do a little bit more research, you also find out that if there was, by chance, a religion or a cult that would say, we have this founder who is a little crazy, but he got a following. He didn't get much of a following, or she didn't get much of a following, because not many people follow crazy people. Because as soon as you get close to crazy people, they go, whoa, you're crazy. Like, all their character flaws come out. And so they've never gained a critical mass of people. So how good, and, and my point in, in pausing here in this is because sometimes when we're suffering, like I said, we need truth. We need someone to lovingly hold us by the shoulders and give us logical, intelligent truth. And that's what Jesus is doing here. The evidence shows that there's no way a group of Jewish people who believe in one God, who are intelligent, there's no way that they would believe that Jesus was actually God unless, unless it was the best possible conclusion with the evidence presented. Unless this complex, panoramic, multidimensional picture that we see of Jesus in the Gospels is actually who he is. And if you think about that, it's pretty astounding. But if he were only 100% God, then we should be shocked by the way he responds to the other sister. If, we, if Jesus was this divine being that was kind of cloaked in a human skin, wouldn't you imagine him doing things a little differently in this part of the story? When he comes on the scene, he's got to be smiling. There's got to be an air of loftiness. Like, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I'm the resurrection and the life. All will be well. Like, you would see this kind of stoic majesty, right? I think. And, and then when he reads, meets Mar- Mary, and she falls at his feet and says the very same thing, his response is not truth. She doesn't need any truth. She's on the edge of despair. Like, I picture this woman running out to him who's been grieving for four days. This woman who's been pleading with God pleading that, that God would send Jesus to heal her brother for, for more than a few more days and, and falls at his feet, desperate, despair. And Jesus meets her perfectly in that grief. And he gives her tears. He doesn't give her any truth. Because sometimes when we're suffering, we don't need someone to say anything. We just need someone to sit with us. We might need someone to cry with us. And Jesus does exactly that. But he does more than that. Because these aren't like polite little tears. These, the, the text describes these sobs. It says that he was troubled and an anger welled up in him. There was wailing in him. There was frustration in him. There was irritation in him. And, and these, are, these are vulnerable, emotional expressions that we would not put in a divine being. But Jesus isn't just 100% God. He's 100% human. And we need a God who's 100% human. We need a Savior who's 100% human. Because he's got to point us to something more than what we think we need. He's got to point us to his glory. And again, it matters because sometimes we just need tears. Now, sometimes we need truth. And as humans, we get this wrong a lot. Uh, I don't know if you've ever gone to a funeral and said the wrong thing. You can usually tell there's an immediate reaction. 
on the grieving person when you say the wrong thing. I've done it before. Sometimes I get it right, but there's a lot of times I think even people of faith get it wrong. But the important thing to remember is that Jesus never, ever gets it wrong. Jesus never gives truth when he should give tears. Jesus never gives tears when he should give truth. Jesus at one moment can be as humble to the powerless as as he needs to be, and then fearless to the strong. Jesus is authoritative without being oppressive. He is holy, and yet he's accessible. Jesus has the humility of a lamb, and yet the fierceness of a lion. I mean, this is someone that cannot be contained in our pictures, but he is everything we need. And more than that, he comes to restore everything that's broken. He comes to triumph. As we read the end of this story, we see that again, Jesus is deeply moved And he comes to the tomb, and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And he says, take away the stone. But Lord, Martha says, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor. He has been in there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. And Jesus looked up, and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said it for the benefit of these people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And the chief priests and the Pharisees called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. And he said, what are we accomplishing? Here's a man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. See, Jesus will perfectly meet us in our grief, but he wants to point us to something greater. He wants to point us to his glory because he doesn't just come to be this great example of how to minister to people in a time of grief. I mean, yes, there's that. And yes, there's this restoration of a family and of love and of life, but it's way more than that. See, Jesus is crying out with these loud sobs that are that are a deep anger. There's only, I think, one translation I looked at, six, that even gets close. It's the, NI, the newest NLT, New Living Translation. Anyway, it says, a deep anger welled up in him. This is like outrage, fury. Some would use the word pissed off, if you can handle that. And, and this is, they, the picture that they give is this snort of a war horse, or if you're into science fiction, like the fire-breathing dragon. That's the type of venom. That's the type of anger. That's the type of welling up that's happening in Jesus. So why would he be doing that? Is it because he's, he's upset about the family? Did they do something wrong? No, the only thing I can think of is that he is welling up against the anger of what sin and death and destruction happens when we choose to run away from, from God. 
He's raging against death. He's raging against devastation. He's raging against the destruction because God created a world that there wasn't death. God, when he put everything together at the beginning of the story, whether you believe it or not, the writer says that, that everything was good. God intended everything to be in harmony with each other. Humans, God, creation, all good. And yet God can't force us to love him, so he has to put a choice in. And that's symbolized by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that, that the primal sin is that when we were presented with the love and knowledge of God and the knowledge of good and evil, we chose the knowledge of good and evil over the no- love and knowledge of God. And everything that in the world that's, that's wrong stems from that choice. And I think if you spend a little time on it, you'd agree. And so Jesus walks up because he's not just bringing someone back from the dead. He's not just restoring a family. He is restoring everything that's broken in the world and reversing the curse of sin and death and creation and, 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 and Satan in this moment when he says, Lazarus, come out. Now, why could he do that? I think, number one, it's not just because Jesus is a wise teacher. And he's not just a great example. He is 100% God and 100% hum- human. And he's exactly what we need in that moment. And he calls Lazarus out of the grave. And he can call Lazarus out of the grave because he goes in the grave. He takes what we deserve on himself to bring us back into relationship with God. This is what we need. Because we know the world's broken, but we know that our heart's broken too. And as we prepare for communion, I want us to think about and ask God's spirit where we're at. See, Romans 5 says that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death. So death, death spread to everyone because everyone sinned. But even greater, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. Even greater, God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So would you ask God's spirit what you need today? Maybe you're suffering. Maybe you're really suffering. Do you need truth? You can ask God's spirit for truth. And the scriptures will give it to you. And this is a God that's 100% God. He'll, he has the power to heal and do miracles in your life. But maybe you're in a place where you just need tears. Jesus will meet you in your tears, and he's 100% human. He won't judge you. He won't give you something you don't need. He'll always meet you perfectly there, so you can talk to him. He invites you into that relationship. That's what we can do this week. We can invite Jesus into that relationship. You know, give us the tears we need. But maybe you're here and you need triumph. Like you know that something is dead in you. And you need this resurrection glory. You need healing. You need life. You need a calling out. You need someone to pray with you. You need forgiveness. You need healing. You need cleansing. You need freedom. Jesus can give it. Jesus goes in. Jesus comes out. And Lazarus doesn't get risen from the grave from, for his benefit. It's for ours. He, Jesus says it. I like, I'm not praying for, for, for you to hear me, God. I'm praying out loud for these people to hear me so they would know, so they would see your glory. That's what God wants us to see. Jesus 
goes into the grave for our benefit, and he comes out for our benefit. What do you have that's dead in you that you need to get released? Ask, pray. I'll be in the back as we prepare for communion. Ask God's Spirit for just what you need, whether it's truth or tears or triumph. Jesus, I thank you that you are 100% God. I thank you that you're 100% human. And even if that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, I thank you, God, that you just meet us perfectly in our grief. But you don't just let us sit there stuck forever. You, you point us to your glory. You point us to what you came to do and how you came to restore us. And you point us to your death and your resurrection which is the ultimate sign and the ultimate example and the way that we find new life in you. I pray that through these elements and through this time of worship, God, we would remember who you are and we'd remember what you do and what you've done and how you've made a way for us. And as we eat that bread, we would trust you as Lord and Savior. As we dip in the the juice, I pray that we would trust you and we would thank you for how you've brought us new life and that we would live in this new life. Show us, God, what we need today.